Hello, and welcome to another episode of Don't Fuck With The Original. I am your host, Casper. And I am your other host, Becky Gremlin. Here to bring you all things spooky on Wednesdays because... Wednesdays are for podcasts. Alright guys, so this is the episode you've been waiting for for a month. (laughs) Sorry we've been pushing it back so far, but um, given the circumstances and given the fact that we personally went into this place thinking we knew way more than... We thought we knew because um, we got a lot told to us that we didn't know about this story. It was very eye-opening, and we even got the person who helped us learn everything to actually do the podcast with us today. She is a tour guide at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in Fall River, and she's pretty awesome, and we're really glad to have her today. Her name is Danielle. So, how's it going, Danielle? <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being on and thank you for being willing to talk about all the Lizzie Borden things today. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the more um, Casper and I talked about it, we thought, you know, if we're really going to do a service to Lizzie um, and really get the full story out there, we definitely feel like having you on, picking your brain is going to be the best way to do it. and then, of course, to to garner some promotion to the uh, bed and breakfast as well. You guys go visit. It's really awesome. Everybody go. go. Everybody go. <laughs> <laughs> go stay there. It's haunted. Yeah. <laughs> Book your room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, starting off, we kind of just wanted to talk about uh, Lizzie's early life and, like, who she was as a person because, you know, like, a lot of people don't really know a lot about who she was when she was younger and... Um, when she was growing up as a kid. So a lot of the things that we read about her was that she was very reserved. Um, She was very quiet. She kind of kept to herself. And it said she had one really close friend, right? Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should probably go into real quick, though. Like, so she was born July 19th, 1860. Um, And then what little, like Casper said, we could find about her childhood was um, a testimony uh, from Mr. Benson, who was a principal at the grammar school that she went to, um, that said that she was kind of a shy kid and pretty much kind of an average student. Um, or do you, through your research, kind of what, are you able to back that up or is there anything that, that you can kind of give us more credence to? Uh, you're pretty accurate with that. As far as school, they said that she wasn't exactly the greatest student as far as grades were concerned. And uh, she was pretty quiet when she was in school, but she actually, she didn't graduate. She dropped out. Okay. Uh, she was a very avid reader. We actually did read about that, that she actually dropped junior out. junior high, wasn't it? Well, no, her junior year of junior, high school. Oh, okay. Yeah, junior, she, yeah. she mm-hmm. left uh, the Morgan School, the grammar school, went to Fall River High School and then dropped out. Was it because um, I had read a little bit somewhere that she had taken on a job? Was there really any reason out there that she left school? You know, I'm a firm believer and it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. So I could speculate on as to why she dropped out, but I do think that it probably had to do with her getting so active in the church and then perhaps realizing that maybe school just wasn't for her and she didn't see a future with that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> gotcha. Yeah, she had a very deeply religious upbringing. So she attended Central Congregational Church, um, 
pretty much her entire life. Is that correct? Was that kind of like the family's church? Oh, yeah. I mean, even back in that time period, almost every single person went to church on Sunday, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she definitely... Now, one thing that you pointed out, did she... uh when she became a teacher, was that another reason why you think she dropped out? She just wanted to work? Well, she was a Sunday school teacher. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, she was part of the Fruit and Flower Mission when she was younger. She was part of the Youth Women's Christian Temperance Union. And then when she got older, she was part of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Which is a little funny to think about knowing what happened in her, her later years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I always find that interesting. <laughs> Um, well, we all have our paths. Yeah, you know. <laughs> when it happens, it happens. Um, I think it's also interesting to note, to kind of backstep a little bit. Um, could there, could part of the reasoning why she was the kind of kid that she was and student that she was um, could have possibly been a direct effect of losing her mother at such a young age and then her father remarrying, like... I mean, I would think in her being the youngest, technically being the youngest because there was a younger sister that had passed away, um, her being the youngest, that could that have possibly had some effect on her? I mean, it's definitely a possibility. You know, she was she was very young when her mother passed away. She was about two and a half years old. So she really never got a chance to, to know her birth mother. And as she got older, the second mother, you know, Mrs. Borden, she didn't come into play until she was about five. So she kind of had, at that point, I would say two mother figures because she really looked at Emma as more of a mother than a sister, but she did call the second Mrs. Borden mother. So I don't know if if that was a confusing situation for her or if she did perhaps feel a little bit more protected because she had two women that she could look up to. I, I really don't know. I feel like she had a really good relationship with Emma, you know, at the beginning, because like you said, she did look up to her as a mother. That was like her... Her, I can't think of the word. I'm sorry. Well, probably <laughs> the strongest, strongest female. Emma was a mother figure. You know, she always yeah. had care of Lizzie when she was younger. And even when the second Mrs. Borden came into play, you know, Lizzie, I would assume, would have gone to her first before she went to Abby. Strong female lead is what I was trying to I was like, life. my brain was like, know. nope, we're not. Nope, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so... She, uh, let me see, Emma would have actually been, she was born March 1st, 1851. So there would have been about a 10 year age difference between her and Lizzie. Yeah, about nine years. About nine years. Okay. Roughly. It's mine and my sister's age gap. Right. Oddly enough. I was going to say, yeah, that's pretty huge. Okay. Now, was, um... Was Emma just as active in the church as Lizzie was? No, not as much. Um, She was definitely more of a recluse than Lizzie. Lizzie, while she was shy when she was in school, I think she really came into her own when she was in the church. According to some of her friends, just the letters that we have and stuff, she, she seemed to be pretty much a social butterfly when she was around people. You know, she always seemed to be very curious and, and she had a, a hearty laugh. She was going to fishing trips with the church group. So she was very active in her church. Emma would travel, but very rarely. She was definitely more of a homebody. So that even probably gave her more of a mother figure than for her to be like home all the time. And 
Right. Because mothers pretty much did that back then. Yeah, she would come home and tell her about her day and Mm -hmm. spend time with her and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So to kind of go into more of the relationship that she had with Andrew, her father, and then later Abby, her stepmother, um, was Andrew known to be, I mean, I guess we should give a little bit about his background because I think that one thing that's really misconstrued, and I know we're going to kind of get into that a little bit later, but one thing in media that's really been misconstrued is what type of person Andrew was and what type of person Abby was. Did she have a particularly good relationship with with her father? Was he stern? Was he affectionate? Was, I mean, do we, do we know a lot about their relationship? Uh, bits and pieces, and a lot of it has to do with kind of like reading between the lines, um, because there's no personal letters back and forth from them. At this point, it is just going to be purely subjective, but Lizzie did give her father a ring that he always wore up until the day that he died, but we don't know where she got that ring from. Not even her sister knew where she got it from, but we do know that she gave it to her father as a token of, like, I love you kind of thing, and he he always wore it. The relationship with him, I, I do think it was just very typical of a father and daughter relationship. You know, she would get a little upset with him not wanting to spend his money, I guess, but then again, it's easier to spend someone else's money than it is for you to spend your own. Right. So, you know, <laughs> girls being girls, we want modern conveniences, the updated things like indoor plumbing and bathrooms. The the Bordens had running water. They just didn't have hot water. They didn't have bathrooms, which was a modern convenience for the time. And I can only assume that for Mr. Borden, he felt it an unnecessary extravagance for that time period. But I can't really see anything in the research that I've done that would suggest that their relationship was anything other than a typical father-daughter relationship. As for her and the second wife, Abby, um, she called her mother up until five years before the murders when they had a a land dispute transaction going on and the whole family kind of got into a little cuffle over some property. But she did call her mother. I don't think that it was a typical mother-daughter relationship. I think she just grew up calling this other person mother. And I I do think she had uh, affection for her. I do think she loved her at one point. But then things just happened to unfold in a certain way, and she just stopped calling her mother because, as she said, she wanted to. Do you think she, um, growing up doing that, did it because she felt like an obligation to do that, more as, like, how she actually felt about her? I want to say in the beginning it wasn't an obligation because she was so young. She was only five years old when Mr. Borden had remarried, so I think it was a very natural thing for her Mm -hmm. um, to start. But as she got older and she saw the whatever it was that she thought she saw going on within the family that she didn't like, it was at that point in time where she felt it was necessary to stop calling her mother. Makes sense. Yeah, and we should say that I think given the age difference so at that time lizzie would have been about five emma would have been about say 14 or so um that's a real formative year for a child you know especially a girl so i know that with emma there was a real reservation from the start from what i've read that she oh absolutely really it's She's 14 years old, and it's it's kind of difficult to think about it in today's day and age, but she was a woman. 
Right. She was taking yeah. care of the house. She was taking care of her little sister, who she thought of as like this, you know, this daughter figure. And she was the one who was basically making sure everything was okay until this new woman came into play. And back in that time, when a new woman married, you know, your father, you were to address her as either Mrs. or Mother. Right. And right off the bat, Emma didn't either. She addressed her as Abby, which was hugely disrespectful. So, yeah, yeah, Emma so didn't like her at all. To a hot start. <laughs> Emma was like, no, I don't like you. <laughs> Wait, yeah, she like, was like, nah, I'm not about this life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, which which can be understandable. I can understand that, though. Yeah, Especially because she, she would have had a decent memory of her mom because she was nine when she passed, or um, 11. She would have been 11. 11. Yeah, she would have been 11 when She would have been passed. 11 when she passed. Goodness, yeah. So she had a decent memory of her mother then, especially. Right. Right. And unless the relationship got off to a good start and they had that time to build a bond, I I can't understand why she would call her mother either. But right. mm-hmm. I think she was just kind of sticking the knife in and twisting it by addressing her as Abby because I think she felt so slighted by her father remarrying. Right. I can see that. I can understand that. I can see why, you know, we've heard, you know, you, you read things about Abby as well and that she really tried to gain the affection of the two of them because... You know, she did marry their father. Um, was there any issue that she had gaining Mr. Borden's love for her? Because I've actually heard, like, rumors about the fact that he just married her for the fact that he needed somebody to take care of the kids, too. Right. I mean, it, it does kind of seem that way, because if you think about it, when Mr. Borden had started off his career, he was basically broke. So he was apprenticing under Southern Miller, which is the man who built the house he ended up living in on 92nd Street. And after the house was completed in 1845, that's when he married Sarah. And they married on Christmas. So we think that that was truly the love of his life. And he saved up all the money he could to, to be able to marry her. And then when she died, I think he was truly heartbroken. And at that point in time, he knew that Lizzie was young. And, I mean, Emma still needed an older woman figure in her life, of course. So I think that he just found a good Christian woman at church and decided that she would make a very good, you know, mother for his kids. Right. Yeah. And that was, and I I feel, too, that, that maybe that was something commonplace yeah. in that time. Especially with him right. being a businessman, I feel like he was busy. You know, he was he was busy and probably didn't want to leave his kids home alone. So oh, exactly. that makes perfect I mean, sense. He went out every day. <laughs> he was always busy, always, always working. And he was pretty much financially stable by the time, you know, he married Sarah, Not Sarah, Abby. <laughs> yeah, we should say I pulled up that we should say that. So at the time of his death in 1892, he had amassed a wealth. Uh, that would be equivalent to about $8 million today. Is that correct? Yeah, around that. And even um, on the high end, it could have gone to $12 million. Wow. So, yeah. Woo. You know. The man was worth a penny. <laughs> break me off <laughs> a piece of that. <laughs> yeah, maybe two. Just, <laughs> can we have two cents of him, please? <laughs> I could take yeah. that. I could even take that after taxes, to be quite honest. Right, even after taxes. Even, Give me, like, just a million of that. That's fine. I, I wouldn't even yeah. complain. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so before we get into... So I, I'm glad we got to touch base a little bit more about Lizzie as a child and, and her past, because that was something that I couldn't find a lot of research on that I don't mm-hmm. think gets gets 
really told a lot about uh, is really who she was as a person and surrounding the death of her mother and, and all of that. But, well, unfortunately, um, not a lot of people go into that. They just immediately true. go right into, oh, Lizzie was a killer. Like, whoa, can we back up for a second? Let's talk about her as a person before we get into like, oh, Lizzie's a killer. What's well, a story know? that sells? Yeah. The story that sells. Murder and sex sells. Right. It really does. <laughs> so prior to, all right, because I know we were talking about this a little bit before we got started, which is a, which was a, admittedly a story that I think a lot of our listeners, I know I didn't know about it. Including us. Including us. Yeah. I know a lot of our listeners are probably either knew a little bit of it or know nothing about it, but um the show Ghost Adventures uh, visited some some years ago. We saw the episode, and they touched base on a murder that actually happened in 1848, years prior to the Borden murders, uh, to Abby and Andrew. Um, and it was actually involving um, who would have been Lizzie's great uncle and his second wife. Um, can you kind of go into a little bit about that story? Yeah, so um, for anyone who has ever heard the Lizzie Borden story, we do talk about the Kelly's house next door, which is kind of part of the maid's alibi for where she was when Mrs. Borden was killed. She was talking to the maid who lived next door there. Well, that house was built around the same time the house where the Borden murders took place, and Mr. Borden's uncle lived over there with his wife, Eliza, and they had three small kids, Eliza, Holder, and Maria. And in 1848, the story has it that Eliza had such severe postpartum depression that she tried drowning all of her children in a well in the backyard. And she was successful with the two smallest ones, whose names were Eliza and Holder. And then the same day, the mother went into the basement and she took a straight razor to her own throat. But luckily, out of that whole story, the older daughter, Maria, did survive. Is she, uh, how long did she live or do you know any information about her? From what I could find out, she ended up living uh, a very long and, and hopefully a happy life, and she just she died of old age, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's good for her, but poor thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Well, because I know Lodwick, <laughs> Lodwick actually went on to marry two other times before he passed away. He actually had four wives total. All right. So he was a busy man. Um, difficulties. Yeah, okay, we're back on track. Um, yeah, so he was busy. Uh, <laughs> he was busy. <laughs> Jeez. Four marriages, dude. Like, Sir, can you please stop getting married? Try to keep up with that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like we said, we didn't really know about that story till the Ghost Adventures episode, and I think a lot of people would be interested to know that, I mean... I don't know. Maybe that adds to the spookiness of the place a little bit. I mean, I'm not like, gonna lie. It's kind of. I'm kind of glad that we did find out more about that story before we stayed. In yes. <laughs> we, before we stayed in the attic because um we interacted with them. It was so kind of a kind of a prep. A I know because I was like, oh, these are children. This makes this a whole lot easier. <laughs> I was like, I'm a little freaked out, but at least they're children. That yeah. makes this easier to handle. They're still murder victims, but they're kids. Sorry, I don't know why I just sang that. Their children. That didn't make it sound any better, actually. Well, it's like I tell people all the time. It's like, look, guys, they're just kids. They're not children of the corn. Right. Yeah. No, they they really were. They were they were just curious kids. That's all they were. Well, and it was interesting too that we had just um, 
just a few episodes back, we actually did a whole story because it was something that I personally really wanted to touch on. We did a whole story about mothers who kill. Um, ironically. Ironically, yeah. <laughs> and the three women that we picked was Diane Downs, Susan Smith, and Andrea Yates. And the only one out of those three that we really showed any sympathy to, which was sort of similar to this story, was Andrea Yates mm-hmm. coincidentally drowned her kids. I mean, it wasn't in a well, but it was in a bathtub. And right. uh, she had severe postpartum depression. I mean, like yeah. several suicide attempts, like was told not to be left alone with the kids, even told at one point not to have any more children. Like, yeah. So um, this was definitely a clear case of that. In, in her situation, in Eliza's situation, I think. I mean, right. it's probably pretty clear. So um, getting into the murders then. So the day, it was actually August 4th, 1892. Um, should we kind of back up a little bit into the day before with the um, food and everybody kind of getting sick? Like, because I know that sort of ties into the story a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good place to start. Okay, So, the, should we bring in the uncle first, or... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's definitely the backstory with yeah. him, too. That was the, we're like, we're, we want to tell the story, but abridged, so you're not talking forever. Right. <laughs> I can do that. I can give you the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like we were mentioning, too, we don't want to... We want... We want we people to go. We want people to go. Yes. So, you right. know... The two if you main... want more details, go see her at right. the actual yeah. place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the two main reasons behind this podcast was to bring as much information, true information about Lizzie as we, as we could and really encourage people to going and taking the tour and really kind of getting the full interaction of actually being there. So, uh, yeah, August 3rd, let's bring in good old John Boy. It's a great place to start. <laughs> John Boy. John Boy. Are we getting to the Waltons now? John Boy. <laughs> Good night, John Boy. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So um, the day before the murders, the, the uncle shows up. His name's John Vinicum Morse. And he had telegrammed Mr. Borden prior to that about some business transactions that were going on. So the family knew that he was coming. So he shows up the night before the murders, which is August 3rd. The morning of August 3rd, so Uncle John hasn't quite got there yet. The family's all having breakfast together. And Mrs. Borden ends up going across the street talking to the doctor's wife in almost a panic, saying that she thinks the family's been poisoned because they've all been sick. And she said there was nothing unusual on the dining room table, but with the milk and bread being delivered outside, she thought that maybe someone had tampered with it and the family had been poisoned. And the doctor later explained that you're not being poisoned, you're just suffering from what they call back then the summer illness, which is what we all know today as being food poisoning, not poisoned food. And this, the second whole poison story comes into play to a couple of days before the murders, when Lizzie was actually seen at a local pharmacy. She was trying to buy some prussic acid there, and prussic acid, of course, is a poison, but it was used as, like, an insecticide back then, but in a very controlled dose. And she walked in saying that she wanted it to clean moths out of her sealskin cave. Well, the gentleman working there, the pharmacist, was Eli Benz, and he told her that a substance like that is too lethal, so without a doctor's prescription, she's not going to be able to buy it. And Lizzie kind of told him, well, I've gotten it here many times before. He said, my dear lady, not by me. And she never got it. But it is a little strange, in my own personal opinion, that the whole family was sick the day before the murders, and Mrs. Gordon's first thought was, oh my god, we've been poisoned. Not that they had food poisoning. 
Yeah, that yeah, is that's, strange. That's very interesting. Because I know, <laughs> you know, and this was other speculation that had come up prior because I had read into the fact that, uh, you know, there was a possibility that Andrew Borden very well likely because of the type of business that he did had made some enemies. So did she maybe speculate that it was Lizzie trying to poison the family or that it was maybe you know, given the bread and the milk that maybe one of these tenants of Mr. Borden's was pissed off and maybe they could have poisoned him. That That's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, I don't know if it was, I don't want to put words in Mrs. Borden's mouth and right. say that she thought it was Lizzie that did it, but something had to have been going on behind closed doors that we'll never know that caused her to feel that it was poisoning and not food poison. And even... The same night on August 3rd, Lizzie had gone to her best friend Alice Russell's house and she started talking to her, telling her that she couldn't help but fear that something awful was going to happen, that father had a whole bunch of enemies and that she heard him fighting with someone not that long ago. She said that uh, Mrs. Borden thought they had all been poisoned because they've all been sick and she couldn't help but fear the house was about to be burned down over their heads. Right. Somebody knew something. Yeah, that's just... <laughs> right? <laughs> speculation, speculation, <something>. speculation. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry, but to be a little, you know, subjective here, I, that sounds to me like someone's trying to plant the seed. I mean, it really does. There's no way you can even try to, like, write that off. Like, honey, if you're saying that the day before this shit happens... Mm-hmm. Because did the friend <laughs> did the friend ever ever bring that conversation up later after? Because I'm like that's just that's too much of a coincidence. Yeah, I mean during the coroner's inquest, they asked her, you know, you know what happened before the murders, and she told the the court that Lizzie had come over the night before the murders, you know, telling her the story and that she seemed to be a little upset that she thought something was going to happen. Right. Right. Thought. <clears throat> speculated speculated i'll use joe rogan allegedly allegedly (laughs) she was acquitted so we'll use a lot of allegedly and air quotes in this right um okay so i guess going into the murders now yeah so um i guess you just just give your best abridged version that you would like to give okay i can do that so On August 4th, the morning of the murders, everyone began to get up in the morning to go sit down for breakfast, and Uncle John, of course, was there at that point. So it was Mr. Borden and Mrs. Borden, the maid, and Lizzie. Emma had been in Fairhaven for about two weeks at this point. She was visiting some of her friends, and she didn't get back into town the night of the murders until 5 p.m. after the doctor had sent her a telegram to return home immediately. So she does seem to be away for all of it. The morning of the murders, Mr. Borden ended up letting Uncle John out the side door at 8.30 to go visit his niece who didn't live far, and they both agreed to meet back at the house to have lunch together. And then Mr. Borden left about 15 minutes later. Around 9 o'clock in the morning, Lizzie and the maid were talking to Mrs. Borden. Mrs. Borden had forgotten pillowcases to make the guest bedroom upstairs, so she goes downstairs into the dining room closet, grabs pillowcases, and that is the last time she was seen alive. At this point in time, the maid goes outside to start washing the windows, and Lizzie either grabs her handkerchiefs and the iron and gets to work somewhere in the first floor of the house, either in the dining room, kitchen, or basement, ironing her handkerchiefs. By 20 of 11, Mr. Borden comes back, and he had to be let in. 
For some reason, all three locks were locked in their front door, which was pretty unusual. But to take a step back, everyone had left out the side door that morning. So it could just be a strange coincidence that no one unbolted the front door because no one had used it. So when Mr. Gordon got home, he begins to pound on the door, and the maid was inside at that point washing windows, so she runs over to unlock the door for Mr. Gordon. When she does, she said that she had a trouble with the lock, so she cursed at it in Gaelic. It was at that point she said she heard laughing behind her on the stairs, and it was Lizzie. But to this day, we have no idea why Lizzie was on the stairs laughing when the maid was swearing at the door. So she lets Mr. Borden in, and he goes into the dining room to take a look at the mail. Lizzie came in behind him asking if there was anything for her, and he said no, but then he asked where Mrs. Borden was, and that's when Lizzie had told him that Mrs. Borden had gotten a note about a sick friend and that she left. So Mr. Borden comes into the living room to sit down, read some of the paper. The maid at that point goes into the dining room to start on those windows. Lizzie is still in there, and she starts talking to her about a dress good sale going on, but... Bridget said she doesn't feel well, like the whole rest of the family. She was sick, and she wanted to go upstairs to her room to lie down, and she ended up doing just that. About five minutes later, give or take, Lizzie ended up going into the sitting room to, I guess, check on her father. And she said that he was sitting down on the couch, and she watched him take off his shoes and put in his house slippers. At that point, she had gone to the barn. She was in the barn for maybe 15 or 20 minutes, looking for a piece of lead, she said, for a sinker to go fishing to Marion Mass on Monday with her church group. But then when someone else asked her what she was doing, she said she was in the barn looking for a piece of tin to fix a screen. Either way, she ended up going into the barn, ate a couple pears, looked out the window, and then she came back into the home. It was at that point that she walked through the dining room, came around the corner, and discovered her father's murdered body on the sofa. So, to make matters worse, once she found her father's body, she goes to the back stairs and starts screaming for the maid. Father's dead, someone came in and killed him, so Bridget comes running downstairs. She's sent across the street to get the doctor, who unfortunately is not home. So she comes back, tells Lizzie, Lizzie sends her out again to go get a friend, and then the nosy neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, sees all this running around going on, so she can't help but to come over, ask Lizzie what's going on, and Lizzie tells her that her father's been killed, please do come over. They have a brief conversation, and then Mrs. Churchill leaves the house, goes down the street to a stable to get the little boy to call the police, who does. And it was... At that point, maybe 15 to 20 minutes later, the police do show up on the scene, and the doctor is also there as well. It was at that point when Mrs. Churchill had asked where Lizzie's mother was. She said, I haven't seen Abby in a while. Did she leave? And Lizzie said, well, yeah, you know, she got a note about a sick friend and left. But then she says this, but for I don't know what, she's been killed too. For I thought I heard her come in a moment ago and go upstairs. I wish somebody would go find her. Now, there's a lot of running around going on at this point, so it seems just, and forgive me for speculating here, but it seems a little strange for someone to walk in the house with a crowd outside, with a whole bunch of people around, and for Mrs. Borden to not ask any questions, go unseen, and go right upstairs into the guest bedroom, where her bed was not, (laughs) because if she'd want to go to her room, she'd have to go up the back stairs. So Lizzie ends up looking at the maid and asks her to go find Mrs. Borden. That poor girl is petrified. She said, I'll be doing no such thing by myself, and I don't blame her. At that point in time, Mr. Borden has been brutally killed. The doctor is there. Some of the officers are there. The friend Alice Russell is there. Now Mrs. Churchill is over there. There's a whole bunch of going on in the house. 
So Mrs. Churchill, of course, the busybody of Second Street, decides to go with her. So they make their way up the front stairs where the guest bedroom was, and they got about halfway up the stairs, and they looked over, and they could see under the bed into the guest bedroom where they saw Mrs. Borden's body lying. That's when both the murders were discovered. Come to find out, Mrs. Borden had actually been killed first. She was killed closer to 9.30 in the morning, and Mr. Borden wasn't killed until closer to 11 o'clock. So there was an hour and a half between the murders. Is that a pretty good synopsis? <laughs> yeah. I would say that's, yeah. I was like, I've heard this story a million times, and I'm still, like, hanging on to every it's word. Still like, I'm hearing it for the first time. I'm like, oh, tell me what happens next. <laughs> well, it's a great murder mystery. I mean, it's still an unsolved murder mystery. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's... Yeah, this is a 127-year-old cold case. Right. Yeah. Exactly, that people are still interested in. Um, We should also note, too, that... um, Okay, so everybody, everybody from my 35-year-old self to my 72-year-old dad to my 95-year-old grandma knows... <laughs> The children's rhyme, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave mm-hmm. her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. So there, <laughs> obviously, that was not, I mean... There wouldn't even be a face left. There would, well, I mean, there wasn't much <laughs> well, of one true, to begin yeah. with. But, um, right. so with Abby being murdered first, so there there was actually about 17, 18... How many, how many direct hits did Abby actually receive and did uh, Mr. Borden actually receive? So Mrs. Borden got close to around, we think, 19 blows. Okay. And the problem with her crime scene is, like, forensics wasn't that great back then. Right. So we really can't say with absolute certainty what the first blow was, but they can say that she got about 19 blows, and they were to the back of her head and neck. Right. Mr. Borden, we, I hope at the time, was napping when he got attacked. And most of his blows were to the front of his face, and he got 10 to 11 blows. One of his blows was actually so severe, it cut his eye socket in half, left his eyeball on his cheek, and another blow almost severed his nose from his face. And if you think that's bad, for Mrs. Borden, one of the blows she received was four inches deep in between both of her shoulder blades. I literally just felt a pain in my back. Like, feels, oh, feels lovely. <laughs> that feels great. Everybody That's listening. That's a great massage right there. I was going to say, everybody listening to this probably did the same thing we They're did. Like, mm. And their backs just instantly tightened up. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that kind of, that kind of pinched a little bit. As far um, as, um, so like, can we get into like the alibis as far as, uh, everyone's alibi? Yeah. Yeah. That sure. time? Yeah, because I'm really interested in, um, you know, we we kind of touched on Bridget like a smidge, but uh, God, poor Bridget, you know, with her being and she was an Irish immigrant and this poor girl just had a heck of a life prior to even coming there. And what a lot of people may not know during that time is um, Irish people were very prejudiced against so i mean they were they were like low man on the totem pole back then so right yeah yeah when she started working for the bordens uh, about two years and nine months before the murders well she was working for the bordens for two years and nine months at the time the murders took place and when mrs borden was killed she had been asked by mrs borden herself to go wash the first floor windows inside and out 
And as you can imagine, it's August 4th, so it's got to be hot and humid. It was around 80 degrees that day, if not a little bit higher. And the poor thing didn't feel well, so she's outside scrubbing away at windows. And this does sound something like something tragic to happen, but bear in mind, it is the 1800s. Once you're hot, you're hot. There's nothing else you can do. (laughs) And she didn't feel too good, and I mean, that's understandable. But usually washing the windows is something she did once every two weeks. The roads are dirt. They live right next to the Uh, mills. So everything got very dirty very quickly. And if you think about it, it's kind of a good thing that Mrs. Borden asked her to wash those windows that morning because now she has an alibi when Mrs. Borden is killed because she actually stopped and talked to the Kelly's maid next door. So her whereabouts were known. And at the time, Lizzie had latched the screen door behind her when Mrs. Borden was killed. So she has an alibi. Right Lizzie puts herself in the house at the time her stepmother was killed. Like I said, she was either ironing her handkerchiefs, heating up the iron, or in the basin grabbing handkerchiefs. And the officers had asked her where she was when Mrs. Borden was killed, and she had said something like, oh, I don't know, I don't know what time it was. So they asked her around 9.30, where were you? And that's when she gave those three accounts. But she said she didn't hear anything. And we kind of have tried this theory out, and we found that depending on where you are in the house, it is kind of plausible that she might not have heard anything, depending on where she was at the time. Mm-hmm. And that is me. So Uncle John, he left the house at 8.30 that morning. He stopped up at the post office to send out a letter, and then he continued to walk to his niece's house on Waybasa Street. And we can put him at the post office and Waybasa Street during the time of Mrs. Borden's murder based on his so-called time frame. But there, there is a little bit of a gap in his time. In the time it would take for him to leave Second Street and go to Waybasa Street, it should have only been, you know, maybe 15 minutes or so. But I don't know. The more that we peek into his alibi, the more gaps that we see. Do go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I don't think I don't think for a lot of people, uh, Uncle John plays a big part of the story because he's not. You know, even in even in the fictionalized movie versions, mm-hmm. you know, he he is kind he's of, just kind of there being an asshole, right? <laughs> in all of the movies, he's, he's kind just... of just painted as this villain that shows yeah. up out of the blue, out of nowhere to argue with his, you know, former sister's husband about money. Which obviously, you know, you went into that 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 wasn't the case. It wasn't unannounced. You know, he knew he was coming, so that that put that to rest. But. um you know, it, nobody really goes into, everybody focuses, well, Lizzie was in the house, but it's like, okay, yeah, Emma wasn't there, Bridget had an alibi, but like you said, if it would only take 15 minutes and there was this like hour or more span of time. Yeah, how much was the the gap, the time gap for him? So it's a little questionable. I mean, I don't think, even in his testimony, he said he got to his niece's house around 10 o'clock or maybe a little bit before but he had left the house at 8 30 so for i would say even if he was leisurely walking there let's say he did get to his niece's house around maybe 9 45 we'll say well, what was he doing for their hour and a half you know what i mean or hour and 15 minutes so to speak so it almost would seem that when mr borden had let him out I'm thinking it could be very plausible that Lizzie just let him back in. 
because he is seen at his niece's house, but when he said he left his niece's house, they all said it was around 1130. I mean, him, his niece, the woman that was there as well. And that has just sent up red flags for all of us, you know, researching the case, because when Lizzie sent the maid to go get the doctor, when she found Mr. Borden's body, he wasn't home because he was on a house call. Well, he was at the niece's house that Uncle John was at, but the two never saw each other. And the doctor had arrived at the house before Uncle John did. So the only way that's possible to happen is if Uncle John had left his niece's house way before he said he did, which would mean he had to leave his niece's house around 1030, which could put him in the house at the time of the murders. But then there's the whole thing about his alibi on the trolley. He was seen on the trolley ride that day, oddly enough, with six priests on it. And he remembered their first and last names. He remembered the trolley driver's cap number, the trolley number itself. All the six priests were found. They corroborated Uncle John's alibi. And they put him on the trolley around 1120 in the morning. The problem is, that's after Mr. Borden was killed. But he did seem pretty confident in himself. I mean, he walked up to a reporter later on and said something like, Look at me as a man of common sense. Could I have committed two acts of butchery and still present to you the appearance I do? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is that supposed to mean, you narcissist? Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, my God. And I like, do find it very funny, too. Like, you, you pointed out that he remembered their names, the trolley number and all that. Sounds like somebody was trying to memorize that. I mean, that's like... You go into a gas station, you buy a pack of gum, and it's like, no, I'm going to need that receipt. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm, gonna take, exactly. I'm taking a picture but of the gum with a timestamp. You know, you're trying to get, you're trying to cover. It's like somebody asking me, like, um, what time did you buy this piece of gum? And I'd be like, well, actually, it was 7.37 a.m. at this gas station. Everybody was doing this. Like, I'm trying to memorize the scene. Right, and that's the whole thing. It it does almost seem like his alibi is a little too rock solid. Exactly. And I can't help but wonder if the police actually investigated that a little bit more as far as the time frame, mm -hmm. if they would have stumbled upon something different. And, I mean, we can't put him in the house at the time Mrs. Borden was killed. We can't put him in the, t in the house at the time Mr. Borden was killed. But there are holes in his alibi and his time frame. To and when Mr. Borden was killed... The maid is in the house. You know, she's upstairs in her room trying to take a nap because she doesn't feel well. Lizzie said that she had walked outside to the barn to look for lead and eat some pears and stuff. But that does leave the side door unlocked. The only kind of hard thing to buy about a stranger coming in and doing it is they have a 12-minute window to kill Mr. Borden. And there's an hour and a half between Mrs. Borden's death and Mr. Borden's death. Would anybody have physically been able to see? So from when we stayed there, and now, of course, given the time frame, this was different. So, of course, structures around the house would have been a little different at that time. Um, would, it, would it have actually been able for someone to physically see John come through the side door at that time? If he did come through the side door, I would have to assume that the person that would see him would be the nosy neighbor next door. Right. But if he did come home around 1030 and or even 1045 and killed Mr. Borden, he'd have to leave somewhere else where he wouldn't be seen because Mrs. Churchill said that she had gotten home around 11 o'clock. Okay. So he would have to kill him aggressively quickly. 
and then, you know, get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, take ten real quick whacks to the face. Like, I don't... <laughs> like, I gotta do this really fast. Yeah, I don't... We don't have yeah. time. <laughs> I don't know anybody that could do that, but... Um, so the inquest into the murders started on August 8th, and it should be known that, um, I think what came into play more so that kind of really pointed the finger at Lizzie as being the culprit, not only was the fact of A, placing her in the house, but B, um, it was brought up a lot about her behavior being very erratic. And I think we should, we should sort of touch on that, um, regarding the uh, morphine injections that she had been receiving that I think some people know that story, but many may not. So if you, if you can touch on that a little bit and then kind of going into the, the inquest following the murders. Also, uh, can you, did she actually suffer from blackouts too? Right. The, the, the whole, to prove. Nothing to prove that. Right. Okay. No okay. mental illness, no instability, no, nothing like that. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Because as soon as you were talking about that, I was like, wait, didn't wasn't there some kind of rumor going around she had blackouts? So I was wondering if there was any, um, you know, evidence to back that I up at all. I think that might have been more of a movie rumor, Yeah, too. probably. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, when, when the murders did happen, Lizzie, everyone kind of paints a picture as she was like, you know, the sphinx of coldness. And that's because they only saw like bits and pieces of her, and then they saw her in the coroner's inquest. So to backtrack, once the murders occur, she was so beside herself that Dr. Bowen actually gave her a dose of morphine, which was actually given in a pill back then, not in an injection. And that was so she could be quieted down and her nerves could be calm. Because, again, it's 1892, and women were not supposed to be in a, a state of panic or, or frightfulness because we could cause ourselves a heart attack and... We wouldn't want that to happen. They'll be hysterical. Oh we my God, so hysterical <laughs> and just erratic and unable well, to control. Hysteria was an actual mental illness back then, yeah. or an actual illness back then that they categorized that women just naturally had. And a lot of times it could have been something due to what we know of now is, you know, menstrual pain or postpartum. <laughs> I was going to say me on a daily basis. <laughs> or just right. any old per any old woman just <laughs> hysterical all the time. Fucking hormones. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was interesting because I know... Um, Again, you know, Hollywood does take their own artistic license, but I know that that was kind of touched on a few times about her being given the morphine afterwards to kind of calm her down. So if, knowing that, I would say that would definitely go into play with her having to go into this inquest. Cause so she, was he continuing to give her the morphine during the time that they were questioning her? Yes, so there's a couple things that come into play with that, and I mean, I know I can say this to you guys because you've been on the tour, but, you know, when the tour ended, I had asked you a question about, you know, where Lizzie said she was when her father came home, and nine times out of ten when I ask that question, no one can remember, because it's such a small detail, and you don't think it's something that should stick out in your mind, right? I mean, she's on the stairs laughing when her father came home, but unless you have a reason to remember that, who is going to remember that, right? So she was asked that question during the coroner's inquest, and she couldn't quite give a straight answer. She kept either saying she was upstairs or downstairs, and the attorney basically said that, you know, I've asked you this a dozen times, you keep giving me a different response, where were you when your father came home? 
And she said, I'm telling you as nearly as I know. I've been asked so many questions. I'm so confused. I don't even know what your name is. And then she looks at the judge and said, I don't have anyone to counsel me. So the judge tells her, you know, this is just a coroner's inquest. This is not a trial. You don't need a lawyer. But then the doctor is put on the stand, and he was asked that if a person that had been given a double dose of morphine for a prolonged period, like let's say from August 4th to August 13th when the coroner's inquest ended, could that have effects on their memory, dilute their mind, or even cause hallucinations? The doctor said, of course it can. So they asked him when Lizzie had stopped receiving the double dose of morphine. And he said, stop, she's still getting it now. I mean, and they didn't, did they even take any of that into consideration? They did. And that's why the whole coroner's inquest was deemed inadmissible. So not to mention that when the, so the autopsies were done in the house because they were trying to search for poison because of Lizzie trying to go to the drugstore and getting the prussic acid, which she never got. And then Mrs. Borden saying that they've been poisoned. So they wanted to search for the poison. But because there was none found in the bodies, Eli Benz's testimony was deemed inadmissible, so they wanted to hear nothing about it. But then when the coroner's inquest gets thrown out, that includes where she was when her father came home, where she was when her father was killed, where she was when her stepmother was killed. So they really can't use any of that information. But because the judge had said, you know, let's for a moment assume you're a man in this position who gives contradictory testimony and puts themselves in the house or on the property at the time of the murders, we'd have to deem you probably guilty, and that's when they sent her to Taunton Jail to await trial. Oh, wow. Because the actual the actual trial itself... So the inquest was August 8th. The murders happened August 4th, 1892, but the actual trial itself didn't take place until June 5th, 1893 correct? Yeah, 10 months later. And she spent that entire time in jail. Right. There was no bail for murder back then. And here's the kicker. She wasn't just held in jail on two counts of murder. She was held in jail on three counts of murder. The murder of her father, the murder of her stepmother, and the murder of her father and stepmother together. Which sounds a little redundant, if you ask me. (laughs) What? Oh my god. I mean, were they just really trying to stick it to her? Good god. Like, oh, you killed three people. You killed them singly and together, because that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. Now, prior to that, um, because now we we do know that there was a second autopsy done to uh, Mr. and Mrs. Borden um, right. prior to the trial. Um, did were did Lizzie and Emma attend the funeral? They did attend the funeral, okay. and then the bodies were put into holding holding vaults, and then. Mayor John Coughlin ordered the medical examiner, Dr. Dolan, to remove the heads. He did it there in the holding vault at Oak Grove Cemetery, but then he took their heads home with him into his basement, where he boiled the flesh off the skulls. And we only know this because his brother was actually hiding in a coal bin in the basement while he did it. From there, he shipped the skulls out to Harvard Medical School to be analyzed because they wanted to use the skulls in court as evidence. And then that brings the story to where... They actually showed the the skulls in court and Lizzie passed out. Yeah, and everyone said she was trying to play it up for the jury. Now, she had no idea, though, right? She didn't even, she had no idea their heads were removed. She didn't know that prior to the fact. No, not at all. I mean, the family didn't have to be notified back then. So the mayor tells the medical examiner to do it. He does it. They get sent to Harvard. They bring him into court one day, cover it up. And then when the 
medical examiner's assistant, Dr. Draper, was being asked a question about the wounds. He's the one who walked over to a box in the middle of the courtroom, lifted up the cover, displayed Mr. Borden's skull as he saw it, passed out. Oh my god. I mean, I probably would have too, seeing my dad's skull in front of me. Good Jesus. Exactly. I mean, I'm sorry. (laughs) Guilty or not guilty, I think that's enough to freak out anybody. Especially when you're not expecting it. Like, you're just, you just see a box open, and then you're like, oh my god, that's my dad's skull, gone. Like, I... That's very macabre, too. Yeah. I mean, that's just not something that... That's kind of fucked up, not to knowing, be honest. And not knowing. And especially when they don't know it's coming. Right. Right. And then for them to be like, oh, well, you know, she's just playing it up. Come on. Come just, on. Uh-huh. <laughs> so Because this, this trial was sensationalized a lot in the papers, right? Like, as much as they could, as much as they could, could play her up in the media even back then, they did, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, it was huge. I mean, it wasn't even for the trial. It was way before that. It was the day of the murders when they were sensationalized the case. It got to the point where about a week or so after the murders, maybe even a couple of days, it's been a while since I've read the papers, but the marshal went on record saying that the the papers are fault-finding and they're based on a misconception. He basically was trying to tell people that the reporters are saying that they're withholding evidence that they just don't have. Which was incorrect. They had about as much as they could get for that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they, they had nothing to go on. They, they had no murder weapon. They had no bloody clothes. They, they couldn't get any solid information or any solid leads from anybody. And keep in mind, things were done so differently back then, there was no such thing as securing crime scenes. Right. Not to mention, the whole Fall River Police Department was at Rocky Point for their annual function. And side note, this was the last time they all went to their annual function at the same time. <laughs> but there was only two senior officers there. Originally, when the police were called, it was mostly rookies, and they even had to deputize civilians. But people walking up and down the street, there was two gentlemen in particular who were just walking up the street, heard gossip about what was going on, and decided to hop the fence and take a look around the backyard to see what was going on. Oh, that's contamination. That is little structure there was to securing crime scenes. Now, that was something interesting that you mentioned, too, that I definitely wanted to, to go into real quick with the trial. Um... Because I know those are two things that get brought up a lot. The hatchet. Because this was something really interesting that I found out during the tour that actually I personally didn't even know. The actual murder weapon was never found. So we, I definitely want to put that to rest for people to think that 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 the the hatchet because I know that there was this whole crap about like it was found down in the basement somewhere and yada 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 and she was hiding it or whatever. That's not the case. It was never actually found. Right. It's just the most famous hatchet that everyone knows and loves is what they used in court as a potential murder weapon, but that was never proved to be the murder weapon. Okay. And you did mention a story about that there was a hatchet thrown up on a roof, on the neighbor's roof or something like that, that could have, they quote unquote thought it could be the weapon, but still it was never proven. Yeah, I mean, they found it, I believe it was a week after the trial had started, or a week before the trial had started, I don't, I don't know, but they found the hatchet up on the rooftop of the Crow Barn, which would kind of be diagonally south, um, east of the Borden's house, and there was a kid playing ball, his ball got stuck on the roof, so he climbed up to get it, and he found the hatchet. And back then, they used to put a piece of material on the edge of the blade that was called gilt, and that was made it to look sharp and shiny. So naturally, within the first uses of that hatchet, the material would begin to flake off, and part of it had. 
But keep in mind that hatchet had been up there for months, so it was too weathered. It couldn't be tested for anything. Right. And about a week later, a carpenter did claim that carpenter's hatchet. Now, the jury never knew about the hatchet being found. It was never suspected to be the murder weapon, I don't think, because nothing was done with it. The only interesting part about this specific hatchet is that because part of the guilt had come off, that same substance was found in one of the wounds of Mrs. Borden's skull. Interesting. Uh, okay. okay. All right. Well, yeah. So, I mean, we're kind of grasping at straws at this point, trying yeah. to, you know, <laughs> make scrambled eggs out of a whole chicken here, but... <laughs> Because <laughs> there was no it, evidence. It, yeah. Right, yeah. So we'll just like like I said, I mean, this is all allegedly. Right. Every every new hatchet would have that guilt on it. Exactly. Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on too that you mentioned was no bloody clothes. So right. there's this whole thing about uh Lizzie burning a dress. Yeah. And I think that some people know about that. Some people don't. Can you can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, bear in mind, Saturday after the... So the murders happened on Thursday, August 4th. By Saturday, Lizzie's told she's a murder suspect. The house is searched thoroughly. And it's also the day of the funeral. After that occurs, everything seemingly kind of goes back to normal. Sunday morning, Lizzie, Emma, and the friend Alice Russell are all having breakfast together. And then Emma goes into the sink room to do dishes. Alice went upstairs into the master bedroom where she was staying to freshen up, I suppose. And then Lizzie goes into the kitchen, into the coal closet, which was next to the stove. And she pulled out a dress and she says, oh, this old thing, it's covered in paint. I'm going to burn it. Now, Emma hears her from the sink room and she says, yeah, you should. Why don't you something like that? Well, Lizzie's in the middle of the kitchen. She's ripping up this dress. Meanwhile, she's standing with an eye shot of the side door, which is wide open, and officers are walking around the house. So she's in the kitchen ripping up this dress. When Alice Russell comes downstairs, she walks into the hallway. She sees Lizzie ripping up the dress, and she says, what are you going to do? Lizzie holds the dress up to her and says, it's covered in paint. I'm going to burn it. Alice said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Lizzie, not where someone could see me. It was from that point that Lizzie kind of moved over to the side of the stove and I can't tell you if this is a coincidence or not. It could have just been where she wanted to burn the dress or where it could have been inserted into the stove. But from where she was standing, she becomes out of eye range of the side door. So Alice ends up leaving the room. Lizzie burns the dress in the stove. And it was a couple of days later that Alice's conscience got the best of her, we think, because she went to her lawyers and she told them what happened. She goes back to Lizzie and she tells her, hey, you know, burning that dress is like the worst thing that you could have done. Because if they ask me about it in court, I got to tell them. Right. And Lizzie was like, well, what made you let me do it? Why wouldn't you tell me? And her sister Emma was like, well, we knew she was right, but we really didn't think about it at the time. So Alice Russell did throw Lizzie Borden under the bus in court. But she did say she saw what looked like brown paint on the bottom of the dress. And when the court actually started, when the trial started, a dressmaker came forward and testified on Lizzie's behalf. She said that months before the murder, she had fit Lizzie for a dress. And one day when she went to go try it on to show her sister, she was in such a rush that she scuffed up against a baseboard that had been freshly painted to a brown paint and ruined her dress instantly. The problem is, isn't brown paint the same color as dried blood? No. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this and this was never so obviously since and and you're you're very you're you're right there. So I mean, there's two different stories. Could it have been brown paint? Could it have been blood? Nobody knows. And this could have possibly been a reason why this was never brought up because at that point, okay, great. Thanks for letting us know. Thanks for throwing her under the bus, but we have no dress. Like we don't we don't know. She burned it. Yeah, like thanks for um Thanks for this that great story, piece of information but... we're going to get nowhere with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. They tried to take that information and run with it to the point where they were asking the friend next door. They were asking Alice Russell. They were asking the maid. They were asking the doctor, like, as you a man of medicine, did you see any blood in the dress? He's like, no, I didn't see any blood in the dress. The officers didn't see any blood in her dress. The maid said she looked like she was in the same dress she was wearing that morning when she had seen her. So it's like I get why they were trying to go back to the dress, but you have no dress at this point. So what's the point of even talking about it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you literally can't put her in that dress. Like you can't. There's nothing you can. It do. It makes her. It it, no. it does sort of make her look more suspicious. It's almost like they were trying to just do everything they could to just pin it on her. Well, they had at this nothing because they had nothing. So they were like, "Well, you were in the house. It was you. We're gonna do everything we can to make sure you we pin it on you." Exactly. I mean. Think about it like this. She's on morphine because it's after the murders. Right. Let's say she did just have an old dress. But the dress wasn't in the cool closet when the officers searched the house because one would have to assume if it was there, the officers would have removed it. But they didn't. So two questions here. Was the dress in the cool closet? And if not, where was the dress? Nobody knows. No. I don't know. <laughs> let's consult Lizzie ourselves. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's go. Yeah. Let me just let me just give get her number real quick. <laughs> Excuse me, where's your number? Put out my lifeline. <laughs> Call out my lifeline. Yeah, just like just like Danielle said, let's just get our pendulum ready. <laughs> so um ultimately as the story goes, Lizzie was acquitted. Um, the trial lasted, so the jury deliberated on June 20th, 1893. I'm sorry, I'm dying. I apologize. You're all right, but you're okay. You were saying, I apologize. This happens every time. So I think listeners, it's like, oh, we're about an hour in. Cue Casper choking to death. Yep. Um, it's time, time for, oh, look, we're an hour in. Time to choke. Time for Casper to choke to death. <laughs> Um, so, uh... Oh, no, I've been poisoned. Oh, no. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> We're not... You're not doing that to No, me I was just... I was just talking about getting Lizzie over here, and I'm over here choking. Am I dying? Am I poisoned? No, I'm just kidding. I was gonna say, you tried to... I got blamed... The last Salem episode, I got blamed because I was a witch. I'm not getting blamed in this one. I am not... <laughs> Casper needs to take one for the team. Not blamed. Right? Poor, poor Lizzie's been blamed enough. I'm not gonna blame oh, her for my coughing gosh. fish. <laughs> so the actual trial took place for about how many days itself about two weeks uh, roughly yes. okay okay and then june 20th the uh jury deliberated and she was ultimately acquitted um right was that was that due to lack of evidence or they just couldn't come to a decision i think it really came down to it being lack of evidence and the fact that she was a woman i mean she's a sunday school teacher women did not do aggressive things like that back then if a woman was being convicted of murder she'd be convicted of poisoning 
So to believe her to do that in that time period, you'd have to believe her to be a fiend, you know? And the juries couldn't fathom a woman committing such a horrific crime. Especially someone like her, just like you said, Sunday school teacher. And yeah, I mean, she had no nothing to. Women. They can't prove motive. They have no bloody clothes. If she did do it, she's like the original OJ. <laughs> OG OJ. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when they said, I thought it was interesting how, um, you know, on the tour, you mentioned that prior to the crime scene photos, the only other famous crime scene photos that were known of were the Jack the Ripper crime scene photos. And then right. following this trial, um, you know, this this really before this one, OJ was really the next one that was one of the most landmark cases in, in American history as, you know, as far as an acquittal goes and just literally the whole world knowing about it. Yeah, I mean, this was the second case in history that was covered by newspapers worldwide just months after the murders took place. That's, kind of, that's so crazy, too. That's actually kind of cool to know that. Yeah. That's really well, neat. Yeah. And I would think, too, back in that time, you know, we're talking the late 1800s, there probably wasn't a whole lot going on. So, <laughs> right. I mean, for for a murder only, like that to happen, everyone's like, holy shit. Yeah. Brutal, brutal <laughs> as hell. But then also a woman is speculated of doing that. I mean, my exactly. God. A, you catch a slow news day, August of 1892. <laughs> Holy shit, everybody's picked this story up. Oh, it was a slow day, guys. Uh, I wonder if something's going to happen today. Woo! Murders? <laughs> Boom. Like, jump on that. <laughs> and a woman was in the house? Yeah. Oh, scandalous. A woman did it? <laughs> yeah, they arrested a woman for it? Oh, my God. Yeah. Unheard of. Because so, we can't, oh, yeah. we can't do anything like that. Yeah, it's doesn't not happen. at all. Well, and that still <laughs> happens to this day too. So after the trial, um, Lizzie and uh, Emma, of course, move out of the house, and uh, they move um, into Maplecroft. How? Because how long did that actually happen? Like following the acquittal that <clears throat> they left, and all of this was it pretty quickly afterwards, or? Yeah. So. Um... When Lizzie was acquitted, she moved back to 92 Second Street, where her sister was, obviously. And uh, because there was no will ever found, Emma was next of kin, so she got everything. And then she ended up splitting it with Lizzie. It was 20 days after her acquittal that they bought the house in the hill, which was the fancy part of town back then. And honestly, it still is today. But they bought that house 20 days after Lizzie's acquittal, wasted no time at all. And then it was a few weeks later they moved in. It was Lizzie who actually named that home Maplecroft in 1909 and then had it engraved into the front steps, which, honestly, guys, it was a little pretentious. People weren't naming houses in Fall River back then. They were naming mansions in Newport, Rhode Island, but not houses in Fall River. <laughs> is there a reason as to why she named it Maplecroft? Do you know, or is that just what she Because could? of all the maples on the property. I yeah I kind of I kind of speculated because there was like a maple street so you're like yeah there was a maple street there were maple trees everywhere yeah and I, I think yeah, yeah so I'm like oh that, yeah, that would make sense she actually lived on French Street and so she named her home Maplecroft and then um, a lot of people actually don't know this but she changed her name to Lizbeth like you had mentioned before right and henceforth she was known as Lizbeth of Maplecroft and she even had little cards drawn up that said so. 
Love it. God, I love her so fucking much. <laughs> I'm like, that is amazing. <laughs> like, I wish I could have. I wish I could have known this person. Damn it. <laughs> I want to hang out with her. I want to be a part of the scandalous group. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's kind of sad though because she never. It really didn't. It really didn't matter to people after the acquittal because mm-hmm. you know she she ultimately changed her name to kind of get away from that, but people still knew who she was. And then of course this nursery rhyme comes up and kids are singing it and people around town and by the way, what was the not to interrupt you, but real quick, what was the origin of that rhyme? Uh the nursery rhyme was started by a journalist who was trying to get his name out there. And what Mm -hmm. made it so famous was kids, you know, they pick up on it, start singing this jump rope and it's just, it kept gaining in fame over the years that people are still drawn to the case thinking that that is the fact and not the fiction. Yeah. That's why I wanted to bring it up because I, you know. Because a lot of people don't know the origin behind that because my parents even asked me, they're like, didn't she whack her father and mother like 40? I'm like, no. Yeah. No. I no. My dad said that. my dad said the same thing. So I was like, no one knows it was actually her, and it was not near near forty times each. Right. <laughs> like you said before, Casper, they'd have no face. Yeah, there would There'd be nothing be of a head left. Nothing no. left. Nothing. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it would take a lot of strength. I mean, not only the blows that happened anyway, but I would think it would take an even significant more amount of strength. And time. To, and time. And time. Yeah. Got to take time into account for sure. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, go on with what you were saying. No, 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 you're <laughs> fine. That was, that was, that was great actually. Um, so Lizbeth of Maplecroft. Um, mm-hmm. So she lived there with Emma at the time. And uh, we know that, you know, of course, during that time, there was all, you know, she still just wasn't outliving the murders and that there was even speculate. She was, she was, uh, wasn't she a, a, accused of or somebody that she that she was a uh, she shoplifted that there was yeah, something honestly, going on I don't know how that started because there's never been anything to back that up she had money thief, so yeah. I really don't know if that was because I mean a year before the murders on 92 2nd street that they get broken into and Lizzie Emma and the maid were all home at the time but they didn't see or hear anything and then Mr. Borden called on the marshal to investigate, but called out the investigation because gentlemen were seen getting onto a trolley with the tickets that were stolen. And when the conductor asked them where they got the tickets from, they said, oh, Lizzie gave it to us. So we don't know if that's true. We don't know if Lizzie did give it to them. We don't know if Lizzie stole them. We don't know if Mr. Borden called out the investigation because he thought it was an inside job. We have no idea. So maybe people just took that story and ran with it. To say that she was like a bad seed prior to the murders, anyway. I mean, I, I really don't know. Just, I feel like she got a lot of bad rep for a lot of speculation shit. Poor girl was so misunderstood. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> Like good, that's why I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blame her for my coughing fit. She's got enough she's shit got enough blamed on her. Well, <laughs> so speaking of somebody that went through a lot of shit too. So after the trial, we know what happened with uh, Lizbeth and em- Emma. Um, John was actually living in Iowa at the time. So after he gave his testimony, he went back to Iowa and ended up dying in 1912, I believe. Um, that sounds about right. And then, um, Bridget, uh, how long did Bridget leave? How long did it take after the trial and everything that Bridget left? Because we do know that she actually ended up leaving at some point. Right. Um, so 
when the murders occurred that night, she left the house. Oh, wow. And she went down the street to stay with the doctor's maid because she didn't want to be in the house anymore. So the uncle actually got up the next morning and went knocking on the door and said, hey, you're paid the end of the week. Come back and get breakfast, which was literally that day. Oh, my God. So she did. She came back, cooked breakfast, and then she packed her bags, and she never stepped foot back in that house. So when she was held to, you know, await trial and stuff, because she obviously had to be a witness, she was paid while she was being held. And then once the trial was over, she actually disappeared for five years. And eight pages of her testimony went missing. And rumors started to fly that Lizzie must have paid her off, you know, to go back home to Ireland and keep her mouth shut. But... The rumors really never proved to be true, and out of curiosity, people, and myself included, who work at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast have gone back to the census to try to find her, but we couldn't. I mean, the census only happens once every 10 years. We just missed it. When we did find her again, she popped up in Anaconda, Montana in 1898, which I know sounds random, but a lot of Irish immigrants moved west, so it's, it's not hard to fathom that she moved out there for friends or family. And then she she ended up marrying uh, Jonathan Sullivan in 1905. She didn't have kids, and she never spoke about what happened in the house that day to anybody, not even to her husband. I mean, not that we can prove. And we don't know if she kept her mouth shut out of fear, guilt, or maybe even participation. Yeah, that was a big one was the participation right. thing. But then you pointed out that her and Abby were actually close. Yeah, they, they were great friends. They got along wonderfully. So I, me personally, I think if that if Bridget knew anything about what was going on, I think that she would have said something to Mrs. Borden. Right. Yeah, that would make ter- total sense, too, out of loyalty. If she had any reasoning right. of thinking that Lizzie would have been involved in doing anything, she would have said something. At all. Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you on that. I... I originally went in thinking the maid had something to do with it, and I'm like, nah, she, she didn't have nothing to do with it. Yeah, she was, she was, <laughs> she was paid well for the time that she was there, given, yeah. you know, given her being an Irish immigrant, and then her being friends with Abby, her alibi being out, yeah, it just didn't add up that nope. she had anything to do with it. Um, so after, after the acquittal, Lizbeth and Emma are at Maplecroft. Um, at some point prior to Lizbeth and Emma passing away in 1927, there was a kind of a bone of contention with them. Something happened. Nobody knows what really happened. But this is when um, Nance O'Neill kind of comes into the story. Lizzie kind of starts hanging out with people like actors, musicians, people that are kind of seen in high society of or as sort of less than. And uh, of course, this just starts more rumors circulating in town already about her. And then ultimately it led to a big falling out between Emma and Lizzie. Um, of course. Right. Uh, nobody really knows, though, what actually happened between the two of them, correct? Right. I mean, and that's like the most difficult part about it, I think, because... Emma is a mother figure to Lizzie. So what happened that was so horrible that Emma couldn't stay in that house anymore? And what what was it you said that she said to her? Or she said, what was her last thing that uh, Emma said? Uh, She was asked for years why she ended up leaving Maplecroft. 
And she said, the happenings at the French Street home that have caused me to leave, I must refuse to discuss. I did not go until things became absolutely unbearable. And I don't suppose I'll ever see myself stepping a foot back in that place while she lives. Which, I mean, just listen to the words that she uses. It's while she lives. It's that place. She's completely um, disassociating herself with everything. And she's almost... Like, she's, there's no more mother figure, there's no more love and care, there's nothing, it's, it's her, it's that place. So trouble had to been brewing for a while. We know she went to her reverend to get counsel, and he was the one who advised her that it would be highly beneficial for her to move. And that could have been for several reasons. I mean, yeah. it could have even, it could have gone back to, A, what some people speculate having to do with the murders, or B, going back into what we said about Lizzie having more of a personality of being outgoing, hence the reason why she's attracted to these musicians and actresses. And, you know, Nance O'Neill was a famous actress at the time that she became friends with. But then you've got Emma, who is a lot more reserved, a lot more private, a lot more, you know, I want to be by myself. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And that could have kind of that could have very well interfered with interfered with Emma's lifestyle being around these people or having these people around I think you're 100% right on that I mean Emma like you said was the recluse she wanted to be a little bit more reserved and left alone and and just the idea of her sister hanging out with you know I hate to say this but I'm going to use air quotes here those people I mean the theater people were the scandalous ones the partiers the drinkers probably doing drugs and you know god only knows what else so in that time frame, you didn't associate out of your class. And now Lizzie is socializing with people where in today's day and age would be like us socializing with prostitutes. It's social suicide. So I think Emma was just like, you know what? I just, I can't live like this. I've had enough. I gotta go. <laughs> and that's when she went to her, her reverend and he was like, yeah, you, you should leave. This would be very beneficial for you if you do. So Emma actually ended up moving in with friends and she lived in... Um... Was it New Hampshire? Is that where she ended up yeah. moving to? Yep. Okay. New Market, New Hampshire. Okay. And, and she, she never... Up, the house that she lived into with her friends, she ended up buying them the house, and then she continued to pay them rent all the time she was there. Wow. I bought the yeah. house, but I'm going to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And who knows? Did she do that because that was just the type of person she yeah. was, or did she do that because she wanted to keep people around her? Maybe just... I think she was trying to be nice, and I think she also did that because it was their house, so she could technically live under, like, an assumed name. Ah. Uh, so it was more for, like, privacy issues, I think. That, that sounds like sense. Emma. <laughs> yeah. she, was a, she was a recluse. She didn't want yeah. people to know her business. I I get it. That definitely sounds like her. Now, she never she never married, had kids, or anything like and that. And neither did she, Lizzie. Yeah. Neither did Lizzie. Oh, no, yeah. Neither one of the girls. So Lizzie ended up passing away um, June first. This this shakes me. This, <laughs> this this right here shakes me because they were born nine years apart, her and Emma. Right. And they died nine days apart. Right. That right. shakes me. <laughs> yeah. Emma followed uh, January or sorry January bleh, June. <laughs> Not even on the radar. Um, she, yeah, nine days later, June 10th, 1927. Um, so did Lizzie, it said Emma actually passed away in a nursing home. Did Lizzie die in, in Maplecroft? Yeah, yeah, Lizzie passed away in Maplecroft. Okay. 
And hers was pneumonia, correct? Uh, she did get pneumonia, and they called her cause of death heart failure. And what was Emma's? Uh, nephritis. She was already suffering from kidney problems, and right. she died of what they called nephritis, which is kidney failure. Right. That's so odd. They died nine days apart. That's so odd. Well, here's a little folklore for you guys, and this can't be proven anywhere, so don't <laughs> take this to the bank. But it is rumored that when Emma was already sick because she did have the kidney problems and then she was informed that her sister died, she died nine days later of a broken heart. Well, I believe that. So she was actually informed when Lizzie passed away? She was. That would make, I can understand that. I believe that. Because I, I mean, feel it's... like Emma always loved Lizzie. Yeah. No matter what. Well, and that's I think been... she was already sick. I think it has expedited the process. Right. That's been medically proven, too. Yeah. I mean, I... Yes. Yeah, so that that I've I've always come to believe in that myself, and that I I have a medical background, so I know that that actually has been medical medically proven that that actually can happen. So I would right. I would believe that I would buy into that for that's sure. So sad too. Yeah, that was uh, that's really fucking sad the story. And again, our <laughs> listeners know that we try to make light. We do such dark subject matter, so we really try to keep it as funny as possible. And I know we laugh through a lot of this, but really at the end of the day. Not only are two people brutally murdered in a murder that is still to this day unsolved, this poor woman, whether you want to believe she did it or not, just had a really unhappy, didn't really have much of a happy life following that. I mean, I think she did the best of what she could. You know, she she lived in the area of town where she wanted to live. She, she went to parties and stuff. She kept traveling. She did have a close circle of friends. She had her servants who she was very close with. Um, but she, she had to live with that stigma for the rest of her life, guilty or not guilty. Either half the population was Lizzie did it or half the population was no, she's innocent. Split down the middle. It's just, and imagine if she didn't do it and she had to live with that for the rest of her life. It's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad. So at the time of Lizzie's death, um, she was worth around $5 million of today's money. And um, she ended up give. She actually ended up bequeathing that money to like her driver, Fall River Animal Society. Like, where ultimately did most of that money go? So she was one of the original co-founders of the Animal Rescue League in Fall River, and she left thirty thousand dollars to them. She ended up leaving five thousand dollars to the Animal Rescue League in Washington D.C. She bequeathed some originally to her servants. She put some of her servants' kids through college. She wrote out a blank check to her chauffeur so he could make some repairs on his house, left her chauffeur her car. She was just, she was very generous with her money. And she loved animals. Yeah, I think one of my favorite pictures that we mm-hmm. saw there was the picture of her with the, uh, with her Boston Terriers. So cute. Because that's yeah. my favorite <laughs> so dog. So cute. <laughs> yeah. She just looks genuinely happy in that picture. Like yeah. she does. And funny story, I have to bring up the fact that my dad has a neighbor who has a Boston Terrier and the dog's name is Gnarls Barkley. And I feel like that is the greatest name for a dog ever. Just want to <laughs> say that. <laughs> Isn't and that I, a great name? And then I asked the question, is he crazy? He's pretty crazy too. <laughs> And he actually is. He's pretty crazy. But, but crazy in the best way. <laughs> For a Boston Terrier. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know if any of your listeners are anywhere in the New England area, but if they are, um, 
if, if you're not listening and knowing that I you should be, but uh, Lizzie's Boston Terriers are actually buried in the Pet Cemetery in Dedham, Massachusetts. There's the board name on the front, and then their names are all on the back, and there's a little inscription that says, Sleeping a While. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the most... <laughs> that was the most precious thing we've I'm heard this saying, entire podcast. Everybody's going to listen to this and it's going to be It's going to be a together. unanimous all. Unanimous all. <laughs> That's so sweet. That well, is we precious. know we know we're animal lovers. Oh my god, I love animals our, so much. Oh. We know most of our listeners if not all of them are animal lovers, so I'm sure they'll If you're not an animal that. lover, be an animal lover, just don't listen. Or anymore. just don't listen to us if you don't love animals. <laughs> Stop you Nazi? Like, what kind of person you, doesn't love animals? You fucking Satan. <laughs> <laughs> In a league uh, with the devil, aren't you? <laughs> so, if you don't like animals, you are trash. Yeah, you're a terrible person. Actually, I think yeah. even Satan likes animals. He's I'm probably just, got pets, so fuck off. Yeah, so you're just a terrible <laughs> person altogether. Um, he's probably got the coolest pets, too. Sorry. He's got hellhounds, dude. <laughs> he's got hellhounds. Those motherfuckers are huge. Satan's got the best <laughs> Um, there's probably things that fly, you know. I don't know. <laughs> actual dragons, dragons. like not right. well, not those kinds of dragons, but like the evil ones evil and like dragons. evil dogs and like evil shit, evil cats, <laughs> the <laughs> Sphinx. <laughs> evil Sphinx is what I'm picturing. <laughs> so oh, we and we do that happens. This happens with us. <laughs> So, um, anyway, yeah, so that was a great, that was great leading into the story of Lizzie going into the murders and, uh, everything to follow from there. So I think what we really want to get into now is kind of the interest that's always been in the story since the murders. So we know there's been countless books, written movies, television shows, you know, some have taken artistic license. Some are based on fact but um i think we kind of want to go into the the kind of the hollywood lore that really went into this story that i think have really led people into speculating who they think lizzie is and what they think happened um can i get your opinion as far as movies go i mean i know it was mentioned a lot on the tour about the elizabeth montgomery movie that that came out and um was that the 70s or the 80s? Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, 1975. 1975. Yeah, it was called The Legend of Lizzie Borden. And honestly, I think it is one of the best ones out there as far as being accurate. The most factual. Okay. I actually yes. really like that one, yeah. too. Yeah, that one is really good. And it was great seeing it there. Um, yeah, that was cool. knows, Yeah, they, they show it. If you stay, it's great. They sell it in the gift shop. And it's good to know that that one is one of the... That, that that one is probably based most on fact out of any of the other movies that have come out since. Oh, yeah. I mean, when they do um, some of the court scenes, they use the transcripts. Oh, that's Whoa, cool. That's awesome. I actually didn't know that. I didn't either. Well, I'll tell you something now. Uh, honey you have taught us so many new things that's just well, that's just the tip of an iceberg and again this is giving our our listeners more information too like right, if you yeah. really want to find a movie out there that that you really should watch to get more of the story that would yeah. be the movie you know besides a documentary if you want something you know a little bit more exciting like that would be the movie to watch um, right. I think it's also that was interesting, which I actually knew this prior to the tour. Didn't Elizabeth Montgomery find out that she was like seventh cousin or something of Lizzie Borden? Yeah, she was like six cousins twice removed. Huh. 
I would have been like, are you fucking serious? That's kind of interesting. <laughs> she must have been bewitched. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just wiggle my nose. <laughs> if only. If only. Um, so I think the other thing, too, that I really wanted to touch on about the movies that have come out, kind of the newer Lizzie Borden movies that have come out more recently was the one with uh, Chloe Sevigny called Lizzie. Um, which was, which was good. It was a good movie. I liked um, it. I, I liked, I, it, yeah, I liked yeah. it. It was a good movie. I liked it. Well acted. I liked it. Um, but. <laughs> well, I, well acted. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. Well, Kristen Stewart didn't do that so, bad. No, she was okay. I wasn't even talking about her. Oh. <laughs> we'll get into who I was talking about. I, I hold, I hold nothing against Kristen Stewart. I don't, I don't hold anything against her. Just usually when you're like acting. Kristen Stewart's the immediate like the one. one. Like, oh, that movie was bad? It was because Kristen Stewart was in it. Wait a minute. I didn't even get there. Um, no, my my biggest issue with that movie, especially knowing more of what I know now, is yep. I really did not like the way Mr. Borden was portrayed in that movie. I thought, like, if you right. could not have gotten... First of all, he didn't look anything he like was Mr. Too young. Borden. He was way too young. Mm-hmm. Um his attitude, the whole speculation of sexual abuse with Bridget and all that garbage. I mean, obviously that sells. So, you know, yes, that's that going to sell the movie. But, um, you know, I did want to touch on that movie a little bit of what was in the Christina Ricci one. And then going back into uh, Lizzie's actual relationship with Nance O'Neill. What what do you personally think has led more so now people into kind of taking Lizzie on as being this like LGBTQ icon with these, you know, I know back then that there was, and I, I, I first and foremost fell into this rumor. I never speculated that she had any type of relationship with Bridget, but I firmly believed that there was some type of relationship between her and Nance O'Neill, and that's what fell out between her and Emma, which we still don't know because even if there was, nobody ever would have talked about that back then because that was just, you know, you would either be thrown in a mental hospital or prison. But um, given your opinion, what do you really think kind of started that as her being kind of taken on as this possibly being lesbian, queer, and then that kind of entering the lexicon of what we see now in, in Hollywood portrayals of her? Right, I mean, I think Lizzie was such a powerful, powerful force to be reckoned with when it comes to, I mean, just think of the guts that she had to have as a woman in that time period to do something that you socially just did not do, which was hang out with theater people. So just the fact that she had the, the courage to do that and the, yeah, look at me, I'm going to do whatever I want to and I don't care what you think is awesome in and of itself. So just the fact that she kept doing that, I think it really got people's attention and they had to talk about it, obviously in a negative way, because you just didn't behave like that unless you were, you know, in the theater or living that type of lifestyle. So it, I don't think it's that far of a jump for them to believe that, well, if she's hanging out with the theater people and she's throwing a party for Nance O'Neill, well, then she must be gay. I think it was just another way for them to, for that time period, ostracize her and cast another bad light on her at that point. I don't think that she had a relationship with Nance O'Neill. Based on the research that I've done, it doesn't seem like they had a close relationship. It just seems like they had a friendly one. But anything is possible, and I can understand why people started those rumors. 
Whew, that's a rumor that's escalated, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people really took that and ran with it. Because I know that... Give someone the, an inch, they'll take a mile. In the Christina Ricci mm-hmm. one, that one... That's the only one where they touched on the Nance O'Neill That's the only part, one that they yeah. actually touched on the Nance O'Neill Because she part. kissed her. And then Emma right. caught her and... and they don't, don't want to speak anymore because Emma's like, oh, And that's actually the only time they ever touched on her being a lesbian in that entirety of that series, of that series. was that one part. Right. Because they didn't, I feel like they didn't want that to define her. Right. They were just like, oh, right. she could have been gay. Moving on. <laughs> right. Well, not only that, but I mean, like, just thinking about things in today's day and age versus in the 1800s. In today's day and age, it's it's about what's going to make money and mm-hmm. sex sells. Yep, it sure does. So it's not a hard reach to go. Oh well, instead of Lizzie just being, you know, with the basic rumors like a kleptomaniac, which we know she wasn't, but instead of just making her a thief and then murdering her parents in a nude like they do in the 1975 movie, instead they're not only going to make her a thief in the Christina Ricci movie, but now they're also going to make her a lesbian that's hanging out with theater people sneaking out in the middle of the night going to do you know you know hush hush things with her friends and it's not a far leap for the movies to do that and then you know then the chloe savigny sevigny however you say her name <laughs> sorry if you're um, <laughs> when that movie comes out that just 180 out i mean not only the sexual abuse but right. just the, all the levels of wrong that happened in that movie i just I can't even begin to understand why they thought that was a good idea. The movies were done very well, so let me just clarify that. Yeah, yeah, well Well acted. Very loosely based on a true story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we all it was kind of it kind of goes back to what we went into about our Salem episode Mm -hmm. that we talked about the Crucible, and uh, yeah, the movie was great. Uh, The book was great. The movie had Daniel Day Lewis in it, very well acted, but. Definitely Arthur Miller took some artistic license because there was quite a bit in that movie that was fictional. So it leads you into wanting to know more about the story. Just like I would really hope that by watching those movies, kind of like what it did for me and Casper, it would want it would lead people into wanting to know more about the Lizzie Borden story and wanting to find the actual truth. I would hope that people wouldn't just watch those movies, take it on face value and go, oh, well, yep, that's what had it. Dad was raping her and dad was raping the 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 dad. Dad was just rapey and raping everybody. Dad was raping everybody out here. Except for Abby. Dad wasn't touching Abby, but dad was raping everybody else. I was like, oh, Lord, I don't think he had that kind of time. (laughs) That's what I was saying. I was like, dad was raping everybody out here. No, it's like, um, but seriously, like, I've been obsessed with Lizzie Borden since I heard that rhyme. I've been obsessed with her since I was like, what? I would think I was like eight. Me too. Like, oh, my God. I've been obsessed with that story ever since. My, My thought on what is... I thought has happened has changed dramatically in the past month though but my story constantly changes I'm always like it's constantly changing the more I find out the more I research the more I look into it um and actually going there and actually listening to you Danielle talking about you know like everything like these little details that I didn't know and like all hearing all of this I'm like well my story changed again so I'm like, right. But that's the best thing. I mean, and it's great that your story is changing because that means you're learning more about the case. You're educating mm-hmm. yourself on the facts. And that's just what we want people to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. While the movies didn't portray things the way 
we would have liked them to be portrayed, it got so many people to the house. And for that, we're going to be eternally grateful because now all we have to do is, oh my God, damage control. And we have to tell them what really happened. I mean, if that's the worst thing that people actually get to come to the house on an awful movie, as far as the history is concerned and the story, <laughs> right? I can't clarify that enough. Um, <laughs> She's like, oh my God, damage control. <laughs> but, but like you said, I would think that would bring a lot of... Yeah. Learn to come learn about the story because of that. So, I mean, out of something weird came something really good. And it is so neat to sit down and, like, listen to you talk about it while being in that house. It is an experience it is like the unlike coolest anything thing. else. I, I cannot <laughs> suggest it to anybody more if you really... That's, like, just... highlighted on my list as one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. Because oh I'm, my God. Uh, <laughs> you guys are awesome. No, I mean I'm serious. Because I have I've been obsessed with the story for years. It's been one of my favorite. Honestly, my next closest thing would be would be touring, doing the Jack Rip, Jack the Ripper tour. Yeah, I mean, 100%. yeah, I I that's that's on my bucket. List. I'm over here like murder stories. This is amazing. Well, and actually being there. That's <laughs> and the actually thing. being there exactly. Not only being in the murder stories, but you know you hear it and and you and you. Yeah, you have the story when you hear it, but when you're actually there, the way you the way the tour is structured, it's structured that you know you take us to each room and then you go through the whole. I mean, it's almost like you're seeing it in your mind's eye. Mm-hmm. You're seeing Lizzie in the house. You're seeing Bridget in the house. You're seeing everybody. It's like you're watching the, the real movie. Happen. You're watching it happen as yeah. you're, <laughs> as it's going on. So, um. Yeah, I didn't... Did you have anything else, Casper, to... Uh, go go to the board and bed and breakfast, because it's <laughs> fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, cheap plug. Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum is on 232nd Street in Fall River, Mass. We are open for tours seven days a week. Our first tour goes out at 10 o'clock in the morning. They go out every hour on the hour until 3 o'clock. And we are open for overnights, usually Wednesdays through Sundays in the busy season. And come for the reenactment on August 4th, where we all dress up in roles, and the bodies are there, and the reporters are there, and you can interact with us as the actual people on August 4th. Let's go back August 4th! Yeah! Let's go back! (laughs) (laughs) So we will start our GoFundMe now um, for anybody who would like to contribute to Casper and and Becky Gremlin. No, we need all the money, because we are so broke after this Walks into the Lizzie Borden um, gift shop. Ooh, this is nice. Ooh, this is nice. Walks out with a giant ass box of shit. <laughs> you know what though? It was all worth it. It we, was. Uh, we booked. We booked in advance, and uh, it was. It was worth it. And it it's very haunted. I mean, you you can believe what you want, and you can speculate what you want, but you heard our experiences a couple episodes ago. It's haunted. Yeah. If people get you know, and Danielle, you go into that a little bit on the tour that people. Not not just us. Other mm-hmm. people that have been there have had experiences, have either caught things on camera, have caught things on video, have caught things on audio recordings, and I'm sure that's been going on. Uh, can you give a little bit of history, actually, when the bed and breakfast started? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the house itself has always been a private residence, and the bed and breakfast began in 1996 by Martha McGinn and Dan Evans. They opened it to the public. Martha actually uh, kind of grew up in the house. Her grandparents were the ones who owned it. And when the when the old man passed away, he left it to her. So she opened it up to the public. And then now it's owned by Donald Woods 
and Leanne Wilbur, and they've owned it since 2004. And they also own Maplecroft, right? Yes. Yeah, we should let people know, too. Um, I know that that was something that I asked you about uh, when we stayed uh, at the bed and breakfast, that um, Maple, they've, there's been some talk in trying to turn Maplecroft into a bed and breakfast, but there's been some issues with that. But as of now, it is available for um, Airbnb, I think. Uh, I think so. I'm not sure on that though. Or is that? Still I actually was there. trying to research into that myself, and I can't find it on Airbnb. Okay. So I don't know if you have to contact the owners directly or something. Yeah, nobody quote us on that. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah, we're, we're speculating. Even the tour guide who works there doesn't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah. So. Yeah. So nobody just. Yeah. If you guys want to do your own research for that, we don't know. We tried, but yeah, we should say though that um, you can. Um, you know, the, the Maplecroft and Oak Grove Cemetery aren't aren't far from where the bed and breakfasts are. Um, you can yes, go so. to the cemetery. Um, and if you're going to be in the area, then um, another cheap plug real quick. Oh, <laughs> of course, please. The Fall River Historical Society. They are not far from Lizzie Borden House. They are one of the oldest buildings in Fall River. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have the information that we do on the Lizzie Borden case. They have a room dedicated just to her. They have artifacts from her jail, from the trial, um, letters, the original crime scene photos. They have a whole bunch of stuff there. The house is just amazing in and of itself. So if you're in Fall River and you visit Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, check out the cemetery, check out Maplecroft, and go to the Fall River Historical Society. Yeah. The Historical Society was one thing that we did not get a chance to do that we definitely want to do the next time because we did find out about all the artifacts that were there, interestingly enough. The uh, the blanket from the guest room that still had particles of, of Abby's blood on it. Yep. Yeah. Her so. hair piece, part of Mr. Borden's hair. Yeah, it's all there. Oh, wow. If not That's for that, morbidly like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, and you're into it if you're listening to this podcast, so go. <laughs> like, right? Obviously. Not to mention the, all the really cool stuff in the house itself. And just the history. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. The history. Come of take it. a walk back in time with us. Exactly. Um, Danielle, thank you so much for doing this with us. We just, we cannot thank you enough. We really appreciate, you know, your hospitality there Mm -hmm. during our stay. Uh, the tour was more than informative Mm -hmm. and, uh, we really appreciate you, you doing, taking the time to do this with us. I second all of that. (laughs) Ditto and ditto. (laughs) Ditto. My pleasure. And you're an absolute sweetheart too. So we appreciate how kind you've been through everything as well. Uh, thank you so much, guys. It was a pleasure to meet you, and really, thanks again for having me come on your, uh, your podcast here. It was awesome. Of course. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right, well, we'll let you get back to your life today, so. <laughs> All right, guys, so that was our Lizzie Borden episode. We oh. hope you enjoyed it. It was amazing. Boy, we hope you guys, we know it took a while, but um, we really hope you guys appreciated it. And, uh, you know, we... um. I don't know about Casper, but I don't I don't want to really give my opinion on what I think. Um, I think that I, but I will say this. I am very, very interested in what you guys think. So if you guys. Yeah, we don't want we don't want to. Word. We don't want our opinion to influence their influence. Yeah, we don't want to be like, oh, we think this happened. And then you guys be like. Oh, no, We I want to know what you guys think, because I have reached out to a couple people and told them what I think, right. because I have changed my opinion, 
But after hearing all of these details that you've just heard, my opinion personally changed after like 10 years. Like, no right. joke. So, if you, right. you can be like, I thought this first, then heard the podcast, then now I think this. Right. That's why we really wanted to bring you the absolute truth of the story and about Lizzie herself as much as we could. And we figured who better than someone who we should we should happen to mention if we didn't mention um, when we started that Danielle has a history background and has also worked for the bed and breakfast for eight years. So if anybody knows this story better, it was going to be her. So it And was I just, really appreciate how she yeah. does it where she's like, here's the facts and here's my opinion. Yeah. She, she doesn't gray anything. And we didn't want to do that either mm-hmm. because that's why we wanted to go into the media aspect and the Hollywood movie aspect of it that I think has really swayed a lot of people's opinions of who Lizzie Borden was and was she the murderer or could it have been somebody else? Um, We really hope you guys take it upon yourselves to do some research about this case. Watch the movies. Watch the Elizabeth Montgomery movie. Watch the Christina Ricci series. I think it's still available on Netflix. There's a um, mo- now there is a movie and a series. There's a movie called Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, which is actually the the hap- the, the, actual the murders, and then um, the Lizzie Borden Chronicles, which are after everything happened. Incredibly inaccurate. But it's very good. So you should definitely watch it. It's very good. And same thing with the uh, movie Lizzie that is out Mm -hmm. with uh, Chloe Sevigny. Did want to give a quick shout out, though, that one thing that I did did personally enjoy about the movie acting wise was Dennis O'Hare as John Morse. <laughs> Dennis um, O'Hare! And we're not partial because we've met him and he's amazing. Oh my god, he's amazing. Oh my god, he's the greatest <laughs> man ever alive. Um, His part but, in that movie is not him and the and no, he is one of the nicest people in the absolute but world. But if I can say one thing, if there is one person that I feel is portrayed incredibly accurately is Dennis O'Hare as John Morse. I really truly believe that Uncle John was that person. So I feel like the see woman the who played Abby and, and Lizzie. Like yes, the actual movie Lizzie. That I actress as her, well did a, did a phenomenal job. I feel like um, I'll, I'll look it I up. think she did a really good job as Abby to be honest with you. I really do. But yeah, the reason why I wanted to bring up Dennis as John Morse is not only do we love Dennis and not only did he just portray that incredibly accurately, I also really want to bring that back to what we talked about as John as a person throughout this entire trial and even subsequent to the murders, how, you know, his story didn't really quite add up, his alibi didn't really quite add up, and uh, he just... Yeah, he just seemed very narcissistic to me. He just had this whole attitude, well, well, how could someone of my stature commit such a heinous? And it's like, dude, for real, will you get over yourself just a little bit? Um, and by the way, the actress that played uh, Abby in Lizzie uh, was Fiona Shaw. She's an incredible actress. She was in the Harry Potter series. She was in True Blood. Um, she's in Killing Eve now. She's She's been acting for a number of years. So, yeah, she... she I really like her. She was phenomenal in Abby's in Abby's role. So, yeah, we encourage you guys to watch the, watch the films, do your research, read the books, um, you know, kind of, kind of base your own opinion over what you read, but make sure that you base your opinion around facts, not fiction. 
which is why we really hope you take away all of the information that we gave you in the podcast. And please, by all means, we're going to plug this as much as fucking possible. Go to the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum. There is nothing like hearing this story in the house because she really does just like becky said she takes you well whoever whatever tour guide you get they take you through every room and they tell you what happened in the room and like literally play the story out as you're going through the house and it's honestly one of the best experiences i've ever had in my life because not only have i been obsessed with the story but actually standing in a piece of history in a place that's been there for almost 200 well over 200 years yeah. yeah, over 200 years. I can't math. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think but, the house was built in like 18... I thought it was 1845. 1840s, yeah, 1845. It wouldn't be 200 years Because there would have been, well, almost 200 years. Yeah. Almost 200 I was like, wait, years. can I math? I can't math. I don't know. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. It's it's old. Definitely been a while. <laughs> I don't have a calculator in, in, in hand at the moment. Um, But yeah. So we'll get into sponsors. We'll... We we almost hit two hours with this one, but I think we we condensed it pretty damn well. I think we did a pretty good Reader's Digest version. Oh yeah, of it. Oh. So we want you guys to go there. Calm your body down. <laughs> I love that you laugh every time I do it too. It'll never get old. I feel like the laugh should be a part of the jingle at this point because yes. every time I do it, you laugh. So I feel like it's just at some point we're just gonna record it and play it back. <laughs> So that way it's just like, could you okay, you guys a, got it? I could do a you British version. Calm your body down. No, I can't do it. Ah, oh, crap. It's okay. We're, we, we'll, we'll forgive you for that one. Um, Shop so, right. <laughs> <laughs> that is an inside joke that none of you will ever know anything about, but we will enjoy it amongst ourselves. Yeah. Um, so right now, guys, um, if you've been checking social media in the Etsy shop, everything has been half off. Um, It will remain half off until the 4th of July, which is next week. Um, The only thing that is not on sale right now is the Pride Bath Bombs and the Pokeballs. um, But still, everything's available at the Etsy shop. Um, Take advantage of it, guys. Take advantage of the half price um, options right now because I won't be running any more sales until the holidays. Um, again, DFWTO is the coupon code that you want to use at checkout to get free shipping and everybody will get a free DFWTO sticker with every purchase. Um, Etsy.com slash shop slash calm your body down. Uh, the website is calmyourbodydown.com and the Instagram is at CURBD. Thanks guys. Calm your body down. My toe popped right when you did it. It did. I don't <laughs> think you guys picked that up, but that was like perfect. I was like, oh. <laughs> it was like, ding, pop. All right, guys. So next week is going to be a surprise because this month has been so insane and erratic and sporadic and all over the place that we are just going to bring you something, a surprise next week. And you're just going to have to find out next week. Yeah, we literally Find out have, on Promo Monday. Yeah, we literally have no idea. We're going to we're gonna sit and discuss the rest of the month and try to get yeah, through July and we're see what we're going to bring you. We're kind of sorry that June has been like all over the place. This month has been a huge, just in our own personal lives, this has been a giant ass month. And we just, we're doing the best we can. But um, we're also vacation brain too. Yeah. I'm it's, still that vacation, vacation kind of changed my life, and I I think it changed Becky's too. Oh, so sure. 
you know, but we'll, we'll definitely, we'll have something prepared for next week and it'll be great. But, um, until then do your Lizzie Borden research, let us know, hit us up and let us know what you think. Yeah, please guys. We'll, um, were you going to put a poll or something out? I did, but I think I might actually put up the email. Yeah. Yeah, And, um, that way you guys, if you want to email us, you're more than welcome to, you can send a direct message. Um, actually, you know what, why don't we do this? We will, um... At the start of next week's podcast, guys, we will actually read the email responses that we get with you guys. We'll we'll kind of start off with reading the email responses and then we'll go into our story. So, um, yeah, please, after this, let us know what you guys think. Mm-hmm. Email us and then um, we'll pick the emails that we that we like and we'll we'll read them next week. And, and don't just send like Lizzie did it or. Emma did it. We will like, not read those. I need, can we do some explanation? We will not read those. I swear <laughs> to God, if we get, if we get like 15 emails of Lizzie did it, Lizzie did it, Lizzie did it, we're deleting every single one and we're blocking your fucking email address. Don't waste our time. Don't do that. Do do a bit of an explanation. Seriously though, say who you <laughs> no, think did it yeah. and why. Back, yeah, back us, it up with something. And also, I would like to know if, um... Did did your own research sway your opinion? Did listening to our podcast help your opinion? Um, have you yourself stayed at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast and had experiences um, and had experiences and uh, and formed your own opinion from there? Like we we sincerely want to know. We want to know what you think, and we want to know where and how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, we want to hear your guys' experiences. We want to know what you guys think. We want to get you guys involved. It's been a little while since we've had you guys involved. So yeah, we're going to be really get you guys involved in this one and give us your opinion. This story has been around forever and I know everybody, pretty much everybody knows about it. Someone that my job was like, I don't know who Lizzie Borden is. And I was like, get go away. (laughs) So can't help you. Um, if you do want to send in um, who you think it was, feel free, please, to email the DFWTO at 8493. I'm sorry. D- I fuck up the email every fucking time. DFWTO8493 at gmail.com. Too many letters and numbers. My brain's like, one day we'll say it all correctly and we won't have to worry about it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, just email that. Um, you can tweet us at DFWTO8811. Uh, we are on, you can Facebook message us at Don't Fuck With The Original. Uh, Instagram, Don't Fuck With The Original. Twitter, Don't Fuck With The Original. We are on Podbean, CastBox, Podcast Addict, and um, Podcast Spotify. Player and Spotify. Uh, all at Don't Fuck With The Original. So yeah, please get involved with us next week and we will look into how what you guys think and we'll, we'll go into it ourselves. But we want to give you some time to formulate your own opinion before we give out our opinion. Yeah, so. I think we'll we'll probably do that next week. We'll start off uh, next week's episode with reading um, the top picks that we pick from you guys messaging us on what you think. Um, and then we'll kind of give you guys... Once we hear what you guys think, we'll give you our opinion, and then we'll we'll go right into the episode. So yep. it'll be a big surprise episode. Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll have an awesome week, and remember that Lizzie Borden did not take an axe and give her mother forty bucks. Don't not go to whack it anybody. Was actually, a hatchet. Anyway, <laughs> not even an axe. Don't go a whacking. But I guess it doesn't. Lizzie Borden touch a hat, took a hatchet, gave her mother forty whackets, whackets. <laughs> It doesn't even work, so that's why they changed it to... It sounded like Elmer Fudd saying it. 
Waska Wee Wizzy. <laughs> Waska Wee Wizzy doing the Waskilly Watchets. <laughs> okay, guys. It's time to go. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Have a great week. Bye.